0: Bible to Mark chapter 3. We are going through uh, the Gospel of Mark this spring, and we've said a few times the Gospel of Mark is focused on three major questions Who is Jesus? Why did he come? And what does it mean to follow him? So it's a great book to begin with. If you're exploring Christianity and just wanting to learn about Jesus, uh, the book, book of Mark is a great place to start. And if you've been a Christian for Years and years, uh, it's a good thing to come back to because it brings us back to the foundations of our faith and the person of Jesus. So today we're looking at Mark chapter 3, uh, verses 7 through 19, so I'll begin by reading that passage for us, and then uh, we'll look into it. Here we go, Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee They fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us insight as we consider your word this morning, that your Holy Spirit would help us and bring to our minds and hearts what you want us to be impacted by and to take home with us in Jesus name Amen what does a successful church look like now if you ask different people you'll get different answers to that question some people would say a successful church is one that reaches out widely right successful church has all different kinds of people uh, who attend children and youth, younger adults, older adults, people from different cultural and ethnic backgrounds, rich and poor, and everyone in between. A successful church has a broad range of ministries that meet uh, uh, many different people's needs. And a successful church is always looking outward, looking to expand more widely and perhaps plant or or help other churches begin. Uh, so that's one answer you might get from many people, but other people would say uh, no, a truly successful church is one that impacts people's lives deeply. Uh, It's not so much a wide range of programs or a big crowd or a big show that makes a successful church, but rather a depth of relationships and commitment and teaching. So eating meals together, praying together, looking into the scriptures together, knowing each other by name, that's what a successful church should aim for. Uh, so you might ask which one of these ideas is right according to the Bible? Is a successful church one that reaches out widely or puts down roots deeply? And practically, what kind of church should we here at Topical Congregational Church be striving to become? Now there are many scriptures that speak to this question, uh, but the passage we're looking at this morning is a good place to start. Uh, Because what we see in this passage is that Jesus' ministry uh, was both wide and deep. Uh, In Verses 7 through 12, we see that a wide range of people were attracted to Jesus. And in verses 13 through 19, we see that Jesus intentionally invested deeply in a few, in a small group, the 12. So I want to look at these two themes today. First, the width of Jesus' ministry. And second, the depth of Jesus' ministry. And we'll consider the implications for us. So first, the width of Jesus' ministry in verses 7 through 12. What we see in these verses is that Jesus attracted a remarkably wide following. Verse 7 and 8 calls it a great crowd. And Mark lists several places that these people came from. Now, so far, we've been reading in mark mark has only told us about jesus ministry in one place that is in galilee so galilee is a big lake uh, in the land of israel and jesus has been mostly in the town of capernaum and some of the other towns nearby in that region but here he mentions four other major regions where people heard about jesus and traveled from far away to see him so he mentions galilee then he also mentions judea and jerusalem now judea and jerusalem Judea is just the sort of region around Jerusalem. That was about 80 miles south of Galilee, and it's where John the Baptist had gathered a following. Uh, Now, like Galilee, this area was predominantly Jewish. Uh, But then he mentions Idumea, which was sort of further south, uh, 120 miles south of Galilee. Now, remember back then, uh, the most you could travel in one day was about 20 to 25 miles. People could walk probably longer than most of us can walk now, right? Because they were used to walking more. But still, uh, you know, 20, 25 miles is about the, about your going to be your limit. So if you travel 120 miles, that means you're basically traveling a week in one direction and a week coming back uh, to get back home. So these people are spending a significant amount of time traveling in order to see Jesus. Uh, now, Idumia was the historical territory of the Edomites. Uh, Where and they were seen as partly but not fully Jewish Uh, Now we have no record of Jesus actually visiting this region It's not recorded that in any of the four Gospels that Jesus went there uh, But Mark tells us that people from this region heard about Jesus that word about him spread all the way down there and People came up to see him and hear him the third region he mentions is beyond the Jordan so if, you, if, if Jesus here in Galilee, Judea and Jerusalem down here, he's sort of going counterclockwise. Is the way that Mark is going. Judea and Jerusalem, Hydum is further south. Beyond the Jordan is east. So the Jordan River goes north-south. Beyond the Jordan is the east side of the Jordan, and that included two regions. One was called Perea, which was mostly Jewish area. One was called the Decapolis, which was a mostly Gentile area. Uh, and then the last region he mentions is Tyre and Sidon. Uh, Jesus will visit Tyre and Sidon in Mark chapter 7. That was 50 miles north of Galilee, and it was almost exclusively a Gentile region. Uh, So Mark is showing us that Jesus' fame has spread in all directions. To the south, to the east, to the north, to the west. There was the Mediterranean Sea, so you couldn't go that far west. Um, But in all directions, Jesus' fame is spreading, and people are coming from all over the place to, to see him. And notice in verses 10 through 11 that the crowds coming from all over the place, they recognize the authority of Jesus. It says all who has diseases pressed around him. The verb could also be translated fell upon him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him. So Ben Witherington wrote this in his commentary on these verses. He wrote the human sufferers fell upon him to touch him. And the unclean spirits fall before him, blaring out his divine identity. The knees of both earthly and unearthly creatures are beginning to bow before Jesus, and even the mouths of the demons are confessing his lordship. So they're recognizing, willingly or unwillingly, Jesus' authority as they're coming from all over the place. Jesus attracted a remarkably wide following. And You know, this wasn't just true during Jesus' earthly ministry. It's also been true since Jesus ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit to his followers on the day of Pentecost. And so for the last 2,000 years, Jesus has attracted a remarkably wide following across geographical boundaries, national boundaries, cultural boundaries, across language differences. Uh, Just consider the history of the early church. Now, for the first 300 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, Christians had little or no political influence. So there are no Christian kings, emperors, or armies anywhere in the world. And in fact, in many places, Christians faced opposition or even persecution from the established authorities. But nevertheless, in this early period, the first 300 years, the Christian faith spread widely. Now, if you read the book of Acts, uh, the book of Acts, for the most part, tells the story of how Christianity spread from the land of Israel in the Middle East to the north and west into what is now Turkey and Greece and finally Rome, sort of the, the seed of the Roman Empire. And the Christian faith continued spreading north and west, uh, so there are records of Christians in France and in Britain in the, in the second or early third century. And finally, in the fifth century, St. Patrick sailed across the ocean and preached the gospel in Ireland. And that's a great story. Uh, but, But Christianity didn't only spread north and west. During the same period, Christianity spread south into Africa. So in the first and second centuries, Christians traveled down into Egypt and the Sudan and Ethiopia and Northern Africa. And in fact, some of the most prominent scholars and leaders in the early church, people like Tertullian of Carthage, Athanasius, and Augustine, all grew up in North Africa. Now, But that's not the only place where Christianity spread. It spread north and west into Europe, it spread south into Africa, and it also spread east into Asia. Uh, there's good evidence that Christians in either the first or second century AD Uh, Make perhaps even the Apostle Thomas himself made it all the way to India and Proclaimed Jesus in India Uh, There's actually some good historical evidence that points in that direction and during that time uh, Christians also established uh, Worshipping communities in Persia that is modern-day Iran and Iraq Uh, Christians never became a majority there Uh, So they never had any political power there, but they persisted for centuries. There was a church in Persia uh, throughout the early years. And in 635 AD, a group of Christians from Persia traveled over 2,000 miles along the ancient Silk Road, and they arrived in the ancient Chinese imperial capital of Xi'an. And there's actually a monument in Xi'an that tells about the arrival of these Christians from Persia who proclaim the message of Jesus Christ in 635 in China. You see, sometimes people today portray Christianity as just a Western religion. That has in the 19th and 20th centuries been exported to other parts of the world along with Coca-Cola, Hollywood movies, and other Western cultural products. But historically, That's not accurate at all. The early church spread to the south, to the north, to the east, and to the west, and for 300 years it did so without any political or military support anywhere. And you know, this wide appeal of Christianity, of Jesus and his teachings, is actually one of Christianity's distinctive aspects because many other religions are concentrated in one geographical area, or primarily among one ethnic or language group. Uh, for example, 99% of the world's Buddhists live on the continent of Asia, uh, even though Buddhism has been around for almost as long as Christianity. Uh, 94% of the world's Hindus live in the country of India. Hinduism is very closely tied to India. Uh, Islam is spread somewhat more widely Uh, But if you study the early history of Islam, it's not like the first 300 years of the Church. Islam began spreading uh, primarily through military conquest, as well as missionary preaching. And also, Islam is deeply connected to the Arabic language. So the Quran is only considered to be true divine revelation in Arabic. So if you want to encounter the true Quran, you have to learn Arabic. That's the teaching of Islam. Uh, But for Christians, we recognize that the Bible was originally written in Hebrew, the Old Testament, and Greek, the New Testament. But you don't have to learn Hebrew or Greek to encounter the true word of God. You see, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and he empowered the Christians in Jerusalem to proclaim the wonderful works of God. And it says people were gathered there from all over the known world, from lots of these places, north, south, east, and west, and they heard the good news being proclaimed in their own languages. And so ever since the day of Pentecost, God's purpose has been that the message of Jesus would go out into all the languages of the world. And so you don't have to learn Greek or Hebrew to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and experience its transforming power. Uh, Today, uh, according to one estimate, uh, 25% of Christians live in Europe, 25% in Central and South America, 22% in Africa, 15% in Asia, and 12% in North America. Uh, There are even some places, like Iran and China, where Christians are severely restricted from practicing their faith, but the Christian church has continued to grow substantially. So from Jesus' earthly ministry until the present day, the Christian faith has spread widely. And it's a fascinating aspect of uh, the history of the church. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, if we're followers of Jesus, we should also long for the Christian faith to continue spreading ever more widely. God wants us to share his heart And his heart is not only for people who are like us, but also for people who are different than us. Uh, Not just for our immediate neighbors, but also for people far away. And so a healthy Christian church should be seeking to reach out widely. Now, what might that look like practically? Uh, Let me just give two practical things. Number one, uh, a healthy church should support the work of missionaries both locally and globally. Uh, So let me encourage you to, Take home these inserts, pray for the missionaries that our church supports, uh, pray for Christians throughout the world, uh, in different parts of the world, pray for other churches in this area as well as our own, and give generously as the Lord enables you. Uh, Lord willing, uh, if if our our giving to the church increases, we can can increase the amount that we give to support ministry, ministry, ministry partners and missionaries throughout the world, but Reaching out widely is not just a task that we outsource to missionaries. Okay, missionaries are not sort of the ones who take care of that outreach thing, right? Uh, Or local organizations. No, second, a healthy church should invite and welcome new people who aren't already part of the church. Uh, and, And let me just encourage you to continue doing that. Some of you are intentional about welcoming newcomers. If you're new here today, I hope you feel a warm welcome and we're very glad to, that you're here. Uh, let me encourage everyone to consider uh, who you might invite to join you on Easter Sunday. Uh, so Easter Sunday is in four weeks. It's a great opportunity to invite uh, neighbors, friends, family members, uh, coworkers, acquaintances to church. Uh, so uh, we'll have joyful music, uh, a message about Jesus' resurrection. We'll have refreshments afterwards. We've ordered a bunch of invitations. They'll be here next Sunday, so you can take some invitations and uh, pass them out in your neighborhood, uh, pass them out of your workplace, uh, give them out to people who you would like to invite to come with you. So let me encourage you to pray about who you might invite, and you might be surprised who takes you up on the offer. Right? You never know uh, if somebody would res- would say yes or no, uh, and sometimes you'll be surprised uh, about who might be up for joining you. So let me encourage you to. Uh, pray and make the most of this opportunity as Easter uh, comes closer. So Jesus attracted a remarkably wide and large following. But before we go on to the second point, uh, notice that gathering and pleasing large crowds was not Jesus' only purpose. Uh, Now almost 40 times Mark refers to Jesus interacting with crowds. So it's a constant theme throughout Mark's gospel. And if you sort of look at all these um, examples, the crowds are consistently attracted to Jesus, but their level of understanding of Jesus and their level of commitment to Jesus is relatively shallow. So the crowds here see Jesus primarily as a means to relieve their pain and suffering. They pressed around him to touch him so they could be healed. And Jesus was merciful. He met them and and healed them. He met them at the level of their felt needs, And he also taught them, but Jesus knew that most of them didn't understand who he was or why he had come. He hadn't only come to relieve people's physical pain and suffering temporarily. That's a good thing to do, but it's not the main reason why Jesus came and certainly not the only reason why Jesus came. You see that in the end, uh, the crowds cared more about what they could get from Jesus than they did about Jesus himself. And in the end, the crowds would disperse as quickly as they had gathered, especially when Jesus dies on the cross. And so Jesus ministered to the crowds, but he also distanced himself from the crowds. In other words, Jesus wasn't driven by the agenda of the crowds. Verse 7 here, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. In verse 9, he told the disciples, have a boat ready because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Verse 12, he told the demons to be quiet because now was not the time and they were not the ones to make Jesus known. So Jesus attracted a remarkably wide following, but attracting large crowds was not his main or only goal. And so as Jesus' followers, as a local church, pleasing crowds of people should not be our primary or only goal either. See, when churches make it their number one goal to pursue and please as many people as possible, they inevitably tend to go off track in one way or another, because the agenda of the crowd is not always the same as the purpose of Jesus. So that's the first point, the width of Jesus' ministry. But now let's look at our second point, the depth of Jesus' ministry in verses uh, 13 through 19. Jesus didn't only attract a remarkably wide following, he also invested intentionally and deeply in the twelve apostles. Verse 13, he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Now Luke tells us in the same passage, Luke 6, 12, that Jesus had spent all night on the mountain praying, and then in the morning he came down and appointed the twelve. So we see Jesus' prayerful intentionality in calling together a core group, 12 men that he would invest deeply in over the next three years, and after Jesus would be gone, after he would ascend into heaven, these 12 would become the primary leaders of the early church. He would hand it over to them and the Holy Spirit. Now, the number 12 was not accidental. Uh, Back then, everyone knew that the nation of Israel had 12 tribes. It started with the 12 sons of Jacob. Uh, But 10 of those tribes had pretty much disappeared after the northern kingdom uh, was destroyed. And they had never really come back together. So in choosing a core group of 12, Jesus was symbolically, symbolically remaking or reconstituting the people of God. The 12 disciples, just as there had been the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 sons of Jacob. And in verses 16 through 17, Jesus gives new names to some of his disciples, namely to Peter, uh, James, and John, which were sort of the inner circle of three. Um, And notice that Jesus did not include himself as one of the twelve. But Jesus had authority over the twelve. Now, think about that. Now, every other leader... In the history of israel had come from one of the 12 tribes and yet jesus called 12 around him just as god had appointed the 12 sons of jacob to become the 12 tribes of israel jesus was doing something that only god really had the authority to do is remake a new people of god in fact verse 14 and verse 16 where it's translated he appointed 12 that word is usually translated made in other contexts. It's the same verb that appears in the Greek translation of Genesis 1:1. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. He made 12. It was when Jesus was calling together the to twelve, he was making something new. It was a new creation. Uh, and he, as the Son of God, was making something new that in time would become the worldwide church. Now, verses 14 through 15, we see why Jesus called them. Verses 16 through 19, we see who Jesus called. So why did Jesus call these 12? Well, for two reasons, that they might be with him, verse 14, and that he might send them out. So Jesus called the apostles not just to be his students or his servants, but to be his friends, to be his companions, to be with him, and then to be sent out to carry out his mission to the ends of the earth. Now, there are some parts of the Twelve Apostles' mission uh, that were unique, but in a broad sense, this calling, this invitation for us to be with Jesus and to be sent out is an invitation to every Christian. See, in following Jesus, relationship comes before task. Being with Jesus comes before being sent out. So, in other words, Jesus doesn't just call us to do a lot of errands on his behalf. That's not Jesus' primary calling for you. Um, He calls us, first and foremost, to be with Him. Uh, Once when I was in college, I was meeting with my pastor, and he asked me the question. uh, He asked me a question that caught me off guard. He said to me, Have you been enjoying Jesus lately? And I thought, I wasn't quite sure how to answer because I wasn't expecting that question, right? But it was a very good question. He's basically asking me, have you are you have you been with Jesus, like the disciples are called to be? Are you enjoying his presence? And you know, sometimes we can get so busy doing things for Jesus or just being distracted by life in general that we don't enjoy his presence and his friendship. You now, I mean, think about it. When's the last time that you simply told Jesus how much you love him and just reflected on His steadfast love for you. If it's been a while, take some time later today to do just that. It's a wonderful invitation that Jesus gives us to be with him. But second, Jesus also sends us out. That's where the word apostle comes from. It's a word that literally means messenger or one who is sent. Uh, So Jesus preached and healed and drove out demons. And then later on in chapter six, six, he would give that authority to his disciples uh, to exercise in his name that is under his authority and according to his will. Now, again, there are some aspects of the mission of the twelve that are unique. We're not apostles in the same sense that they were, but we're all sent out by Jesus to carry his message, his love and power and glory to the world. Now, the Apostle Paul said, we are ambassadors of Christ. That's the idea. People sent on a mission, representing Jesus to the world. So that's why Jesus called his disciples. But then in verses 16 through 19, uh, the end of this passage, we see who Jesus called. Uh, There are four lists of the twelve disciples. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the book of Acts include one. And the Gospel of John lists many, uh, many of them appear in the Gospel of John. Uh, but I'm not going to go through the list name by name. I just I want to end with two broad implications uh, from this list of Jesus' 12 disciples. First implication is, Jesus calls us to be in fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ whom we did not choose. Right? You don't choose your family members, right? You're either born or adopted into a family. And you also don't choose your spiritual family in Christ, because the Bible says that believers in Jesus have been born again through the Holy Spirit and adopted by God the Father. We now belong to Jesus. We're his brothers and sisters because he has called us. Now, Jesus chose the twelve, but many of them would not have chosen each other. They would not have chosen to be part of the same group with each other. Uh, Now, some of Jesus' disciples already knew each other. There were at least two pairs of brothers, Peter, uh, Simon, and Andrew, James, and John, perhaps also Matthew, if he was the same as Levi, son of Alphaeus, and James, son of Alphaeus. But this group of twelve didn't always get along. We'll see that sometimes later in the Gospel of Mark. Sometimes have a little friction with each other. And the twelve also included some people who who would never have been part of the same group. The clearest and most obvious example is, Simon the Zealot, listed in verse 18. Now, the Zealots were a Jewish nationalist group that promoted violent uprising against the hated Roman government. And Matthew, also known as Levi, who was a tax collector. In other words, who was a contractor for the government. That government that the Zealots wanted to rise up and drive out so talk about opposite ends of the political spectrum back then and jesus called both of them i mean imagine matthew looking at simon the zealot across the dinner table and thinking why on earth are we here in the same room our backgrounds are completely opposite but now jesus is our king. And so, that changes everything. Everything gets reorganized when he's the center. So one person wrote, Discipleship does not consist in what disciples can do for Jesus, but what Jesus can make of his disciples. Can you think of someone who you have come to know and love just because they are a Christian? And if you weren't both Christians, you would have almost nothing else in common. Now, those kind of relationships can be hard at times, but they can also be really good and sweet and worth it in the long run. Jesus calls us into fellowship with brothers and sisters whom we did not choose. Second implication, we're sort of getting back to the beginning here. Jesus calls us to reach out widely, and he calls us to invest deeply. You see, those things are not opposites. They shouldn't be opposites in our mind because they weren't because Jesus was committed to both of them in his ministry. And reaching out, we should strive to do both, following the pattern of Jesus himself. Even as we seek to reach out more widely, consider who you can be investing in more deeply. Right? And both of those reinforce each other in a healthy church. That's filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Where we want to reach out widely as much as we can, and we want to love one another and know each other by name and build relationships with each other that are centered on what we have in common through Jesus. That's what a successful church is. One that seeks to reach out widely and one that puts down roots deeply. Let's pray that God will be building us into that kind of church day by day and week by week. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for how you surprise us, how you don't fit into our preconceived categories. We thank you for your wisdom and your love. We thank you for being truly the Savior of the world. And that all kinds of people from every tribe and nation and people and tongue will stand before your throne and worship you. And even many, many have come to recognize you already. Lord, we pray that your word would continue to spread among uh, more widely. And we pray for us as a church that we would love one another deeply from the heart. That we would know each other by name as you call us by name as your sheep. And that we would experience that loving deep fellowship and that deep communion with you that you that your word speaks about pray all these things in your holy name amen